You're going through the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 6, and so let me ask you to get your Bibles again and turn with me to chapter 6, verse 45. Our question is, who is Jesus? Your pastor, when he began this series, entitled the first sermon, I believe, Who is Jesus? And if I were to entitle my sermon, it would be, Who is Jesus? Part 2, then. Uh, to continue that look. For, for many of us, the question seems, it, it seems strange because uh, particularly for those of us who are raised in Christian homes, surely we know who Jesus is. And for some of us, we, we think wrongly, I think, that if you've grown up in America, that surely you know the name of Jesus. You know who Jesus is. We think that's the case, but then Then I think about my own story. Let me give you a little bit of background, then we'll look at the text. I was was raised just north of Cincinnati in in Ohio, raised in a non-Christian home. No no Bibles in our house. Had I answered those same two questions, I would have said there were five people in our house and zero Bibles. Uh, We lived within 150 uh, Southern Baptist churches in driving distance of our home, but I never heard the gospel had you asked me at 12 years old who Adam and Eve were, I couldn't have told you because I, we didn't know the stories. And then God in grace, God in grace put in my seventh grade classroom, I can still see him. Here's my seat and here he is right next to me in the next row. God put next to me a completely obnoxious, rude, tactless, fanatical 12-year-old Pentecostal preacher. <laughs> who, and he was every one of those. And he made it his goal to win me to the Lord that year. So every day of my seventh grade year, he would be in my face with the gospel. So much so that I would skip school some days. I'd tell my mom, I'm sick. I can't go. I don't want to hear from him. Because he'd do things like he'd meet me at the classroom door. I'd walk in the door. I'm 12 years old at the time. I walk in the classroom door at 7.30 a.m. He's waiting for me. Chuck, it's a good thing you live through the night. Uh, He would say, because if you hadn't, you'd be in hell right now. Uh, so now do you see why I skip school some days to avoid him? Uh, let me tell you what he did in all of that. And I thank God for him. He introduced me to Jesus. I knew his name, but I didn't know who he was or what he had done. And my 12-year-old classmate loved me enough to want me to know about Jesus who is this Jesus? That's what, that's what Mark's gospel tells us. Chapter 1 reminds us that he's, he's the good news who brings in the kingdom. In chapter 2, he's the, he's the healer. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the, the friend of sinners. In chapter 3, he's the, the one who calls out his 12. And he's the ruler over demons. In chapter 4, you've walked through this. He is the master teacher. In the latter part of chapter 4 and all of chapter 5, he's the master over nature and over demons and over sickness and over death. And then in the first part of chapter 6, he's the feeder of the thousands. He's the one to whom John the Baptist pointed. And now we look at who is this Jesus in the latter part of the chapter. So we pick up reading in verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to do what? Read it to me. To pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, 
he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not, what? Be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. They were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. Look at that. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Then we continue reading to the end of the chapter. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Who is this Jesus? Well, let's pray together, and then we'll look at this text. Father, I do thank you for the privilege of just gathering in this place. I thank you that we can open your word freely. I thank you for our access to your word, all of it from Genesis to Revelation, in our language, in our hands. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you, God, for those who, who came to us to speak to us about your son. And I pray that as we study your word today, that you would challenge us, you would convict us, you would change us, and help us to fall in love with Jesus even more and follow him more closely because we gather in this place today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I hope you got a pencil, you got a pen. You can type in your phone these notes. Here's point number one. Who is this Jesus? Number one, Jesus is the one who loves the Father. Jesus is the one who loves the Father. Now let me put all of this in, in context. You know that prior to this, Jesus has fed the 5,000. We know there were 5,000 men. It's quite possible there are fifteen to 20,000 people on the mountainside. And Jesus feeds them with this miracle of multiplying the loaves and the fish. And then John 6 tells us that the people want to take Jesus by force and make him their king. And I can just hear the crowd murmuring. I can just hear them saying to, to each other, he's the king. He's, he's the prophet to come into the world. He's the one that we read about. He's, he's going to set up his kingdom now, and, and, and he's going to free us from the bondage of Rome, and, and we won't be slaves anymore. Let's, let's take him and make him our king. And I can just hear that working its way through the crowd. And my hunch is the disciples surely were caught up in all of that enthusiasm because they too, I think at this point, still understood him as only a possible political king. They don't understand him yet for who he is. So I suspect they're right in the middle of that. Let's, let's make him the king. And so Jesus deliberately and intentionally puts them in a boat and sends them away. He will not let them be part of the problem. He sends them away from the crowd. And then he goes up to the mountain to do what? Tell me again. To pray. To pray. That's where I see his love for the Father. Because you see, Jesus, as we read through all the Gospels, Jesus spent hour upon hour alone with the Father. Luke's Gospel in particular shows us that, but Mark does too. 
Mark chapter 1, you may remember in verse 35 that we read that he went very early in the morning to a secluded place to pray. The, the literal meaning is he went so early before the sun came up, before anybody else was up, he gets alone with the Father. In chapter 3 of Mark's gospel, he calls out his 12 disciples, and it's Luke who tells us in Luke chapter 6 that he prayed all night long before Jesus called out these men. Now in chapter 6, when he puts his disciples in the boat, he goes to the mountain and prays. In chapter 9, his disciples, you'll get there, his disciples can't cast out a demon, and they ask why not, and Jesus says to them, you can't do this unless you pray. In chapter 14, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the way to the cross is hanging over his shoulders, and, and still he prays to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. In chapter 15, Mark tells us that he, he utters a, a loud cry at his death. It's Luke who tells us what he says. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And maybe at this point in Mark chapter 6, when he has this memory of the people wanting him to be their king and, and the temptation of the enemy saying to him, let that become your kingdom and skip the cross. When temptation is ringing in his ear, surely he gets along with the Father and maybe he says here again, Father, not what they want, but what you want. He prays. Whatever he's praying here, here's what we can understand. His conversations with the Father are a marker of his love for him. He loved the Father, so he talked to him. So what does that say to us? Here's, here's a first thought. If we truly love the Father, we'll make time to talk to him. It's really that simple. And not just because we have to in the tough times. Now we run to God because we can't handle it. But rather just because we love him and want to talk to him. It's interesting to me. We, we would deem it ludicrous to say we love somebody that we choose never to talk to. That doesn't make sense to us. I love my wife. I talk to my wife all the time. I talk to people that I love. So it makes little sense to us that, that we would say we love somebody and never talk to them. But for whatever reason, for too many of us, that's the way we treat God. We say we love him, but we never talk to him. That's not love for the Father. That's not the way Jesus lived. If you love the Father, you want to walk like Jesus walked, you will pray. Then there's a second understanding here. Prayer often means pushing away from the crowd, from the activity, from the work, from the popularity. See, Jesus could have become their king. It wasn't the Father's plan. So he sends his disciples away. He gets away from the crowd. He gets alone by himself, and he alone speaks to the Father. You see, part of our struggle with prayer is this. Prayer is behind the scenes. Nobody's on the stage praying. Nobody's on the platform getting recognition because they pray in their prayer closet. Nobody's getting awards for being great prayer warriors. Sometimes stepping aside to pray almost feels like we're missing something. 
It almost feels like we should be doing something else. Because we're active people, we're doers. For those of us in ministry, we, we build up our self-esteem by what we do more than how we pray. And here's what Jesus shows us. If you love the Father, you will pray. Even, even if it means you push away from the crowds and the popularity, you just get alone with God. And so let me ask you this morning, do you love the Father? Before you answer the question, let me reframe the question. If you answered the question on the basis of the strength of your prayer life, what would your answer be? Who is this Jesus? Jesus is one who loves the Father. Here's number two. Second truth about who this Jesus is. Jesus is the one who guides us according to his plan. Jesus is the one who guides us according to his plan. Now, let me put it in context again. Remember again, the crowds have said, let us make him our king. And Jesus puts his disciples in a boat and he says, you get out of here, in essence. In some ways, he's protecting them from themselves when he sends them out. But think about this. More specifically, he sends them into a sea that will become the site of a windstorm. A violent one, in fact. So violent that it will drive the boat off course into the middle of the sea. Did Jesus know that? Did he know where he was sending them? Of course he did. And this is not the first time. It's not the first time he put them into a boat and sent them into a literal storm. Remember in chapter 4, the latter part of chapter 4, they are one side of the sea and Jesus says to his disciples, let's get in the boat and go to the other side and... He knows exactly where they're going. He knows exactly what they're going to face. And they're going to face a great windstorm that arises on that sea and the waves are breaking over the boat and Jesus is sleeping in the midst of it. And they say, Master, don't you care that we're perishing? And Jesus gets up and says, Why do you still lack faith? He speaks to the wind and he speaks to the sea and they are both calmed by his words. And, and here's what his disciples learn. They have to learn, first of all, that they're not strong enough to handle everything on their own. Some of these men are seasoned fishermen. They've been in storms before, but Jesus puts them in a storm, a literal storm, to show them that they're not as big as they think they are. But then they have to learn who he is. Remember what they said. They, they look around and say, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this? Jesus sent them into a storm before. Now he does it again in chapter 6. He puts them in a boat again and sends them into a violent windstorm again. You know what that shows us? Chapter 6 is a reminder that just because God brought you through the storm in chapter 4 of your life doesn't mean he won't put you in another storm in chapter 6 of your life. Right? Because he knows exactly what we need. So these disciples, again, have to learn about themselves. They're frightened, rebellious disciples, and they have to learn who this Jesus is again. He's not just anybody. He's God who walks on water. They don't get it, but 
Jesus sends them into the storm to learn. You see, Jesus sometimes sends us into choppy waters. For his disciples here, it was literal. For us, for us, there are struggles, our battles, our difficulties. Jesus sends us into the storm over and over and over again so that we will learn about ourselves and about him. Some of you might be there this morning. What you face today makes little sense to you. You you wonder where God is in all of it. And you've been faithful and you've you've stood for God and you give faithfully through your church of your of your dollars and your talents and still the bottom drops out. And you might even be frightened by all of it. What do you do then? Well, here's what you can stand on. Jesus, who leads us into the storm, is always in control. And he uses our difficulties to remind us about who we are and who he is. He always has a plan. He always has a purpose. And it's always right, even when you and I can't see it. I read an illustration years ago that, that I, I turned to over and over again when I faced those same kind of difficulties in my life. I want you to imagine with me a, a painting in front of us, a painting of, of a cruise ship sailing across the ocean midday. And I want you to imagine the, the vessel, the, the ship. I want you to imagine its black hull that, that is the center of that ship. And I want you to see this ornate vessel, and, and it is so beautiful that it almost invites you to come on board. And I want you to see that ship sailing across the ocean, calm and, and serene, and it seems like the water just goes on forever. See that into the horizon, and then see the, the sun shining brightly, maybe a cloud or two in the sky, but, but warmth and light just come from the painting, and it's painted in such a way that that's where you want to be. I want you to see that. All right, you got that in your head? Now, here's what I want you to do. Imagine the painting is right in front of us, and I want you to walk up to that painting as close as you can get to it, and I want you to bury your nose in the hull of the ship, the black part of the ship. I want you to bury your face right there so that all you can see is black. All you see is black. At that point, this picture isn't pretty anymore. It's not that gorgeous picture of the ship sailing across the ocean. Not anymore. It's just dark right now. Because you're so close to it that you can't see the whole picture. You with me? That's what happens in life sometimes. We live in our struggles. We live in the battles. We live in the darkness. And all, all it seems we can see in the midst of the battle is the black because our noses are buried in our troubles. And we're so close to the situation that we cannot see how the situation fits into the picture of our life. But here's the good news. God sees the whole picture, doesn't he? 
God sees the whole picture. And even in the darkest moments of your life, when your face is buried in the struggle, it's Jesus who leads us into the storm. It's Jesus who leads us according to his plan. That's who Jesus is. He's the one who loves the Father. He's the one who leads us according to his plan. Here's number three. Jesus is the one who loves us in our faithlessness. Jesus is the one who loves us in our faithlessness. Now watch what happens. Get back into the story. Jesus sends his disciples out into the boat. The storm erupts. Remember, Jesus is on the land. He's been praying. He looks out across there, and he sees these disciples straining at the oars, the the text says. They're trying against themselves to keep that boat in order and Jesus sees that, and he goes to them. He walks on the water to get to them. Because you see, he who sends us into the storm is also the one who rescues us from the storm. He has a plan, and he's the Savior. Both. So he goes to them sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in this watch of the night. He comes to them walking on the water. Apparently, the waves aren't a problem for him. Apparently, the wind isn't stopping him. Of course, neither one will hinder him. He made both of them. So he makes his way toward his disciples, and his plan is to walk beside them, to walk past them. Perhaps so they could see him, they could recognize him, they'd see that he's God, only God can walk on water. They'd reach out to him and they'd trust him again as their master. The same one who brought them through the storm in chapter 4 would bring them through the storm in chapter 6. Perhaps that was his plan, but that's not what happens. They think he's a ghost. And in the middle of the storm and in the lateness of the hour, they don't recognize him. And all they can do is cry out in fear. And I can just hear these, these, these fishermen, these disciples, these, the tax collector. I can just hear them all screaming out in fear. Not only because of the storm, but because of the ghosts they see in front of them and Jesus speaks to them. And hear both his command and his love in his voice. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Like a parent who corrects his child and comforts him at the same time, Jesus says, it's okay. I'm here. Some of you need to hear those words today. You're facing great financial difficulties. You need to hear Jesus say to you, it's okay. I'm here. You have health concerns that are deep, maybe even terminal. Your life is on the line. and You need to hear Jesus say, whisper into your ears, it's okay. Don't be afraid, I'm I'm here. Maybe your adult children have wandered into what seems to be a direction toward disaster and you don't know what to do to help them. They're not listening to you and you wrestle as a parent and you need to hear Jesus say, it's okay. It is I, I'm here. 
Maybe you've lost your job and you don't know how you're going to pay your bills. You need to hear these words from the Redeemer. It's okay. It's okay. Maybe you're losing that battle with a particular sin and you're this close to giving up. And you need to hear Jesus say to you, it's okay, I am with you. Maybe you've been praying and it seems like God isn't listening and you need to hear Jesus remind you, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. That's what he says to them, take courage, I'm here. Don't be afraid, but watch what the text tells us they do. You would hope that when he says, it is I, don't be afraid, that would be enough for them. Here's what the text tells us. Jesus gets in the boat, the wind ceases, and the disciples were utterly astounded. They're astonished. They're amazed. Because the text tells us, look with me at the text again. Let me show you this in verse 51. And following, and he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. The text says they're not trusting Jesus even when they see him walking on the water because they didn't learn anything from the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and their hearts were still rebellious. That's, that's amazing to me. Imagine this. Imagine the scene just prior to this event. Jesus is feeding the thousand. Remember, maybe 20,000 people on the, on the hillside. He takes the loaves and the fish. He takes five loaves and two fish. He multiplies them from heaven. And he hands them to the disciples who are distributing to all the people. He's had them sit down in groups. And and if these disciples are coming back to Jesus, they're getting the loaves. They're getting the fish. They're taking them. They're giving the people. They're coming back to get more. They take more back. And they give to everybody. And then they have baskets full left over. You remember? So they are the hands of the miracle. They are very intentionally and very much a part of the miracle. And here's what the text says. They didn't learn from that. They didn't learn who Jesus was there. They're still frightened. They're still rebellious. Well, why does that happen? Let me point out a couple of things. We'll move to our final point. Why does it happen that they, they're hands-on in the miracle and still they learn nothing? Well, here's the first reason. It's easy to forget about God's past tense care when you're facing a present tense storm. Isn't it? It's easy to forget about God's past tense care when you're facing a present tense storm. You see, when everything's going great, when you're climbing the mountain and God's miraculous power is evident in your life, it's easy to trust Jesus. It's easy to trust him when he's multiplying the loaves and the fish. But when life gets hard, when the wind blows against us, when it's late and it's dark and it's frightening, it's easy to forget all of God's care in the yesterdays because we wonder where he is today. And this text reminds us we have to cling to God's care yesterday and trust him today. But there's another reason we struggle, why these disciples struggle. It's easy to see Jesus only for what he gives us and not for who he is. It's easy to see Jesus 
only for what he gives us and not for who he is. Yes, these disciples knew that he fed the thousands. Yes, they knew that he gave enough that they all had leftovers. But somehow they never saw him as God. Not yet. Right now, he's their candy dispenser, if you will. He's not their Lord. And we do the same thing. We forget God's care yesterday when our struggle is today. We turn to Jesus only for what he can give us, not for who he is. These disciples, they're struggling, they're wrestling, they're lacking faith. But you know what? Jesus loves them anyway. He comes to them anyway. He comes to them when they're frightened. He steps into their boat even when they're not sure who he is. He's big enough to deal with their doubts and their fears, and he comes to them in the storm. The point is this. He loves us. This is who Jesus is. He loves us even in our faithlessness. So when we struggle in faith, the answer is not to run from him. It is to flee to him. You with me? He's the one who loves us in our faithlessness. And finally, here's number four. Who is this Jesus? He's the one to whom we bring our family and our friends. I want to show you this in the text again. Go with me to verse 53. I want you to hear and listen to some words that I will emphasize here. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran, look at this, about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. They're running all over the place. They're taking their sick to wherever he is. And then verse 56 says, And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside. It didn't matter where he was. They were going to find him. Villages, cities, countryside. They're bringing the sick with them. They're lugging people with them. They bring their sick to Jesus. Why would they do that? There's got to be only one reason. They believe Jesus can make a difference. It's really that simple. They believe Jesus was the answer. Why did my 12-year-old friend, in his own obnoxious way, why did he introduce me to Jesus? You know why? Because he really believed Jesus was the answer. The person who led you to the Lord, who introduced you to the gospel, grandparents, parents, friends, co-worker, why'd they do that? Because they really believe that Jesus makes a difference. That's what these who hear of Jesus, they hear the stories, they precede his coming, and they're going to do everything they can do to get their family and friends to the one who makes a difference. What does that mean for us? I want to push at you for just a minute and I'll close. Who is it in your life today that needs to know about the Jesus you know? And who needs to know who this Jesus is and what he means to you? I want you to, for just a minute, I want you to get in your head a name and a face. And I'm praying the Holy Spirit would just bring somebody to mind for you. Is it a coworker? A neighbor? A fellow student? 
a family member, your spouse, your children? Who's that person that you need to go out of your way to bring him or her to Jesus today? And I pray that in our response time that you make some commitment to say, Lord, I want to this week. Give me courage. Give me faithfulness. Give me opportunity to speak to this person about Jesus. And here's why. Because he's the one who loves the Father. Because he's the one who guides us according to his plan. Because he's the one who loves us in our faithlessness. And he's the Son of of God, and we have the gospel, the good news about him. That's why we have to tell somebody about Jesus, because of who he is.